Lord and turn with me to 2 Chronicles in chapter 29. You can find this on page 380 in the chair Bible. Before we give our attention to this text, let me say two things by way of encouragement to you. One, we had a representative uh, this morning among us from the Good Samaritan Center, which is something we support here locally to feed and care for the poor, expressing to me after the service how thankful he is for this church and the faithfulness of our church to give and to give unto that ministry. And untold numbers of people are being cared for and fed as a result of our faithfulness. So we, we bless God for that. Uh, another thing to just encourage you, I'm, I'm so thankful for our congregation uh, coming back on Sunday evenings and thankful to see you all. Uh, that we could have a, a large group of people come to worship the Lord. You may or may not know this. We're not the biggest church in our presbytery, but we have more people at church on Sunday night than anywhere else in our presbytery, which is a staggering thing. Um, we just only want it to grow. Uh, but I'm, I'm thankful for you and your desire to come and hear the Word of God. Well, in view of that, let's ask the Lord to be with us as we read His Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bless you that you are a speaking God, that you've made known your will to us, your people. And Lord, we come saying, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Would you make us to understand your truth? And would you conform us to Christ through your truth? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles 29, we're reading verses 1 to 19 of God's holy word. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken Him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and He has made them an object of horror and astonishment and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that His fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in His presence, to minister to Him, and to be His ministers and make offerings to Him. Then the Levites arose, Mahath, the son of Amasai, Joel, the son of Azariah, of the sons of the Kohathites, and of the sons of Merari, Kish, the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jehalalel, and of the Gershonites, Joah, the son of Zema, and Eden, the son of Joah, and of the sons of Elizaphon, Shimri, and Jewel, 
and of the sons of Asaph, Zechariah and Mataniah, and of the sons of Heman, Jehuel and Shimei, and of the sons of Jaduthan, Shemaiah and Uziel. They gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. The priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. And they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it out to the brook Kidron. They began to consecrate on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. Then for eight days, they consecrated the house of the Lord. And on the sixteenth day of the first month, they finished. Then they went in to Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the table for the showbread and all its utensils, all the utensils that King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless. We have made ready and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. Well, this is God's holy word, and may He bless His word to us. On... October 2nd, 1532, a fiery, red-headed Frenchman preacher by the name of William Farrell showed up for the first time in a city called Geneva. Farrell was a powerful orator with a forcible preaching style, and he had been battling for Reformation truths, that is, salvation found in Christ alone, the Bible as the only rule of faith and practice, justification through faith alone. He'd been battling for these things for over 10 years. Now, another Protestant city in Switzerland, the city of Bern, had sanctioned Pharaoh as a preacher to spread the cause of truth. And this soldier of Christ came to Geneva to do spiritual war for King Jesus. Pharaoh was immediately called by the townspeople in Geneva, and particularly the leaders, a devil. And his authority to preach was denounced. However, he proclaimed to his opponents that he was concerned only to preach Christ, who died for our sins and rose for our justification. Pharaoh challenged the papist establishment like Elijah challenged King Ahab. He told the Catholic priests that it was their traditions, their human inventions and godless lives that had disturbed the city. For those words, Pharaoh was reviled, spit upon, beaten and shot at. He was chased with clubs out of the city and he barely escaped. Just over a year later, under the city of Burns' protection, like Paul went back to Lystra where he was stoned, Pharaoh went back to Geneva and he held a disputation, that is a theological debate over the few days, with the best papist theologian the city could put forward, Guy Ferbaty. And Pharaoh demonstrated in this disputation clearly from the Scriptures that the Protestant doctrines were what the Bible taught, and the Bible provided no trace of the Pope, or indulgences, or purgatory, or the Mass, or the worship of images. Unable to argue from the Scriptures, Pharaoh's opponent said, and I quote, "...what I preached I cannot prove from the Bible. I have learned it from the writings of Thomas Aquinas." From that moment, it was clear Geneva would be for the Reformation. Pharaoh kept preaching, the papists started leaving, and by August 1535, the Mass was abolished, 
And on March 21, 1536, the Genevan Council officially adopted the Reformation. They began to stamp coins with the slogan, After Darkness, Light. The light of God's Word, which had been cloaked in darkness, will now shine and it will lead the way. And Calvin, who would come two months later, would then be the leader of a great renewal. Something similar to this is happening in our text. King Ahaz, who we have struggled to listen about over the last several weeks, had the vilest king ever in Judah's history, has been on the throne, and he committed terrible acts, faithless things. He shut the doors of the temple. He littered the land with images to false gods. And severe judgment had come because of his wickedness. Jerusalem was still standing by the grace of the Lord, but if Ahaz's ways were followed, that city would be crushed. But after all this darkness, the Lord suddenly brings light. He raises up Ahaz's son, who thoroughly rejects his father's evil, And Hezekiah commits himself to Yahweh's worship by Yahweh's word. Covenant renewal begins. And in this text, we're going to see five things unfold in that renewal. First, I want you to see with me full devotion. Full devotion in verses 1 and 2. Unlike Joash and later Josiah, who were just children, when they came to the throne after bad kings and started some renewing efforts, Hezekiah is a mature 25 as he begins his reign. So there will be no delays in his labor for reform. But before we hear about the reforms, we get the usual evaluation of a king that Chronicles always provides, and it's a breath of fresh air. Verse 2, you see it. And he, Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. Now this is the complete antithesis to Hezekiah's father Ahaz, whom the chronicler explicitly said didn't do anything like David. But while other kings throughout Judah's history are reported to do what was right, but they didn't remove the high places. Or they did what was right, but only so long as a certain guy lived to influence them. Or they did what was right according to a sort of faithful father. Or they did what was right, but not like David. Hezekiah did what was right according to all that David, his father, had done. What exactly does that mean? Well, we all know tonight, I think, that David was a great sinner. He sinned grievously, not just in adultery and murder, but there was a problem with pride at times. There was a selfish indulgence with his own children, occasional lies, a failure to discipline the the disobedient like Joab, that wicked general. David was a flawed man. But David's heart was extremely tender towards the Lord. And when he sinned spectacularly, he repented publicly. Can you imagine writing a song confessing your sin for all of God's people to sing? We'll we'll sing that next Sunday. You go ahead and work on it. Writing a song for all of God's people to sing about how you need the forgiveness of the Lord. That was David. This man humbled himself before God. He was zealous for God's worship, for God's law, for serving the Lord with all of his heart. There was a vigor and intensity to his devotion. And yes, while David was a flawed man, he was a man of wholeness towards the Lord. That is, he never forsook the Lord, flirting with idols. 
He never stopped casting himself on the Lord, his rock. David had this heart full of devotion. And Hezekiah is the first king in some 250 years to have that kind of passion for Yahweh. Indeed, there's only one other king in the 400 plus history, 400 year plus history of the Davidic dynasty that will have this same kind of passion for the Lord. So this full devotion is a rare thing. But beloved, it is a commendable thing. David and Hezekiah are put before us as models. The Lord knows that we are all sinners. He knows that none of us will reach perfection in this life. But we are nevertheless called not to mediocre Christian living, but to vigorous faithfulness. We look to the godly of the past, those who walked by faith, who were zealous for good deeds, who clung to the Lord through thick and thin, who would not be put off from the goodness of God no matter what crisis they faced, and we are to imitate them. Hezekiah traced the steps of his father David, and we are called to trace the steps of the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the trailblazer of obedience, and we are to walk after Him, having a zeal for God's house that consumes us. Hezekiah could have had many excuses he offered for a less than faithful wife. My father's an idolatrous fool. The worship of God has nearly been abandoned. Assyria is still breathing down our necks. The supposed teachers in Israel, the priests and Levites, haven't held the line. But by God's grace, Hezekiah rejects all the corrupt patterns around him. And he gives himself to full devotion to the Lord. Will we do the same thing? Even if godlessness surrounds us, will we be faithful? If compromise with the world is everywhere, will we determine that God's law and God's worship will command our attention? Will our hearts be given to the Lord? Brethren, biblical religion is one where we say with the psalmist, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. May we have that kind of heart to our God. But then secondly, see with me, not only full devotion, but swift change in verses 3 and 4. We read in verse 3 that in the first year of his reign, in the first month, Hezekiah opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now remember, Ahaz had shut the doors. Hezekiah comes to power and he opens the doors. And there's a question in the text. Is this the first month of his reign? Like the first thing he did was this? Or is this the first month of the Jewish calendar? When month one begins, kind of like New Year's resolution, he engages in this new act. Hard to know for sure, but I think he did it as soon as he comes to power. Whatever the case, the clear impression is, as soon as he has consolidated power, as soon as he takes the throne, he wants to undo the supremely unfaithful done, things done by his father to shut up the house of the Lord. Because with the temple closed, the sacrifices had ceased, the oil stopped burning with the lamps and the, the light of God's presence being communicated, the symbolism of the temple, all that pointed to the coming of Jesus Christ, telling us that we need God's presence, that we need God's law to guide us, that we need God's grace to cleanse us, all of that went dark. But Hezekiah wouldn't abide this rejection of God's ways one moment. 
He put his shoulder to the plow to restore what God commanded. The very means God established to meet with His people, to forgive their sin, and to hear their prayers. It's obvious Hezekiah has a deep affection for the Lord. And while I'm sure there were a number of civil matters that demanded Hezekiah's attention, his father had brokered treaties with foreign nations with bad intent. He had emptied the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house to pay big bad Assyria off. But Hezekiah doesn't make the civil interests of the kingdom, the economy, security and defense and so forth, his first priority. His first business is to restore religion. To open the possibility of right worship to the living God. Because without right worship, civil reform will amount to nothing. What good will economic programs do if when you disobey, God curses you and you have drought and famine? It's not going to do you any good. Now, I want you to resist the temptation to directly apply this principle to our nation and start reasoning in your mind about the reform of society and economics and ethics will never be lasting unless we worship the true God. That is true, but Israel is not a picture of America. Israel is a type of the church. So this message is about God's people. As a church, we can be concerned to spruce up the place, to make the building attractive, to increase our giving, to engage in community service, even to give money to the cause of missions. But if the worship of God through Jesus Christ isn't the first thing, the chief concern, then all that other stuff is vain. Right worship, worship in spirit and truth, worship by the Word of God, worship that focuses on everything the temple pictures, nearness to God through the sacrificial blood of Jesus. If that doesn't grip our hearts, then we will never prosper. Hezekiah understands this principle. He understands that love to the Lord is the chief commandment and love demands loyalty. So there will be a swift move in his own soul to evidence loyalty to God alone and to show Him love in worship. Dear friends, as we look at our own lives, do we have this kind of zeal to honor our gracious God? For instance, when you look at your life and you evaluate yourself and you see things that are wrong, things that displease the Lord, are you swift and earnest to bring change? If there's a defect in your worship, maybe you're cold to the grace of God. Maybe you're dull in your affections. You get as excited about worship as you would cutting the grass. Maybe you're drifting in your focus in the midst of worship, in the midst of singing, in the midst of listening to God's Word. Do you see these kinds of defects? And do you take action? Do you do something? Do you ensure that your heart is going to be devoted to God? Do you seek reform? Are we earnest to shape our lives by what God requires. That is what Hezekiah is doing. And then I want you to see it doesn't stop with Hezekiah himself. Verse 4, he brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them. 
If worship is going to be done by God's word, then these religious leaders better act like leaders. And they hadn't been doing that. Evidently, when King Ahaz had shut the doors to the temple, the priests and the Levites just went along. They caved in biblical worship. They weren't zealous to stand for the truth and do their duty and to preserve what was right, even if it cost them their lives. Well, Hezekiah as a king will not tolerate half-heartedness under his watch. And he lights a fire under these men. Hezekiah knows he can't bring reform by himself. He's got great power as a king, but he can't do it by himself. God has graciously given the priests and Levites to promote godliness throughout the whole land. So they all must labor together. And if we press this principle today, we might put it like this. A godly preacher or a godly shepherding elder who is passionate and earnest with biblical priorities can't of himself put God's people on the path to faithfulness. There has to be a plurality of faithful men, faithful elders, faithful deacons, faithful fathers, and so forth. So forth. Furthermore, in the New Covenant, you have to remember, we are the priests. First Peter 2, we are a royal priesthood. Therefore, every one of us must be engaged, Ephesians 4, to build up the body to, you've heard a lot of this language in the last couple of years, to do your part. That's a biblical principle according to building up the church. To be earnest in using our gifts. To each one of us, build up the body in love to serve the interests of the whole assembly by promoting godliness in response to God's grace. Brethren, do we have an impulse to do that, to engage ourselves in God's service? Is God's kingdom, is His church, our first priority? We are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells among us and we will never function rightly if God's worship, if zeal for God's house is not our chief concern. Indeed, how can we not give everything to our God who has given everything, even His own Son, to save our sin-sick souls? We should make haste to serve such a sweet Savior. And thirdly, see with me now. Holiness needed. Beginning in verse 5 through verse 9, Hezekiah has assembled the priests and Levites. He had what we might call a come-to-Jesus meeting with them. He called them to account, and he told them they needed to engage in personal holiness. He said, verse 5, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves. The command consecrate is literally sanctify, and it's a derivative of the word for holiness. Now, as priests and the Levites, there's a holiness code. There's a way to outwardly cleanse with ceremonial washing, a way to dress, a way to eat, a way to live. And all these provisions of the Levitical law were intended to teach two enduring principles. First, that holiness must be holistic. That whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, it would be done to the glory of the Lord. We don't pursue piecemeal holiness. That is, we try to keep our language under control, but we engage in immodest stress. Or we read our Bible and pray every day, but we lash out at people with our tongues and stew in bitterness. 
No, your whole life is to be given to holiness, not to earn God's favor. You could never do that. But in response to the grace of God, because He stooped to dwell with you, you respond to Him with a life to serve Him. And then the second principle about all the Levitical code, the Levites and priests were to be attentive to this holistic consecration as a pattern to them of a heart devoted to holiness. All of their consecration is external. Washing, avoiding the unclean, but it's to communicate the need for internal purity. We don't want to wash the outside of the cup, but leave the inside filthy to be, as Jesus accuses the Pharisees, of being a whitewashed tomb, looks nice and pretty, but full of dead man's bones. We want a holiness that goes to the heart. So Hezekiah commands these men to pursue personal sanctification. Consecrate yourselves. Put off evil. And then like a surgeon who first washes his hands thoroughly before he begins the surgery, in light of the pursuit of personal holiness, these men are now called to consecrate the house of the Lord, to carry out the filth from the holy place. Everything in the temple that would have been associated with idolatry. Now why was this so urgent? Well, Hezekiah gives them a history lesson. Verse 6, our fathers have been unfaithful. Look, they've done evil things. They've forsaken the Lord. They've turned their backs on Him. They're not burning incense. They're not sacrificing. And what's the result? Verse 8, therefore the wrath of God came on Judah and Jerusalem. Men have been killed by the sword. Sons, women, and children have been taken captive. Verse 9, he's saying, look, we're experiencing the curse of God. So there's no time like the present to engage in holiness. We need to turn from our wickeds right now. We need to take out the old leaven, everything associated with corruption in God's eyes. And we must seek faithfulness immediately. And while we tonight are not being given a command or a principle to rid our worship of all the trinkets of idolatry, don't we see how this concept should be applied to our hearts? Whatever is corrupt within us, we need to remove it that we would be a fit dwelling place for the Lord. We must strive for holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. We must recognize if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if the impurities or tolerations of worldliness, if the indulgences of the flesh characterize us, we need to stop and carry out the filth. You need to search your own soul as I do mine and determine what is the filth living in me? What is corrupting me as a servant of Christ? Because we as God's people must together fight against sin which seeks to destroy us. It's not our friend. We must stand in faithfulness against the devil's fiery darts and make it our aim to purify ourselves in view of seeing Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.3 3. Are we aiming to be blameless and pure amidst a crooked and perverse generation where we shine as lights on the world? Are we seeking holiness? Are we killing sin? How shall we go on sinning in view of the death of Christ for us? We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So will we be like 
Peter says of God's people who say they're Christians, but they're not acting like it. Are you going to be like a dog returning to his vomit? Or a sow to play in the mud? Or are you going to lay it aside and pursue the things of Christ? Fourthly, heart religion. Hezekiah calls these religious leaders to do their job, to be faithful, but then he puts his own personal resolution before them. He doesn't ask of them what he's unwilling to do himself. He leads with godliness. He says, verse 10, Now it is in my heart, that is, it's my resolute purpose from the depths of my being to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that His fierce anger may turn away from us. The language of making a covenant, or more literally, as we know, cutting a covenant, is sometimes used of initially entering into a relationship with God by virtue of a sacrifice, or other times as here, it's used for a covenant renewal. Hezekiah isn't committing himself to do something new. He's recommitting himself to do what God's covenant already required in the covenant made with Moses. But by using the language of cutting a covenant, Hezekiah recognizes that life and death, blessing and curse, hang in the balance. He knows the covenant faithfulness of the Lord means if you walk in rebellion, you will be doomed. You will be cut. And God's people are experiencing that very thing right this second. Assyria and the other nations are tearing Judah apart. So Hezekiah is resolved from his heart to experience the blessing of God, to respond to God's grace with faithful living, with sacrifices for sin where there's been a failure, but a seeking of God's face. And Hezekiah is not content to just go through the motions. He loves God from the heart. He knows the principle Jesus will talk about later, that where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And His treasure is the Lord. What a model to us. Dear friends, is there a resolution in your own soul to commit yourself to the ways of God? Can we say with the psalmist that God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever? Do we publicly commit, as Hezekiah is here doing, to give our hearts to the Lord, to express our devotion from the very depths of our being? Because what is it the Lord requires of us? He requires that we love Him with all of our, and you know the words, our heart and all our soul, in the Deuteronomy version, all our veriness, all our strength, everything we have, our muchness, that is, we give it all to the Lord. Well, that's Hezekiah's determination. It's a determination that you have. And while Hezekiah engages in this covenant renewal, we should recognize we have an opportunity to do this every single Lord's Day, explicitly at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a meal also for covenant renewal. We see afresh that Jesus has been cut. His blood has been spilled for our salvation. We recognize the cost of redemption. And we resolve afresh to walk in His way. Is that your desire? But Hezekiah doesn't only express his intentions of heart with respect to the Lord. He challenges the Levites to have this kind of heart devotion. He appeals to them, verse 11, My sons, do not now be negligent. And the sense of the verb translated be negligent is 
Don't be at ease. Don't be lackadaisical or apathetic. This is a matter of the heart. He wants these men to show earnestness. And why should they? Well, look at the grace they've been given. Verse 11 again. Do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in His presence, to minister to Him, to be His ministers, to make offerings for Him. Hezekiah is saying, guys, do you not recognize the mercies God has shown you? You of all the tribes have a unique role. You've been set apart to be near to God, to serve Him. Shouldn't that grace command your ardent devotion? Well, brethren, remember again, we are the priests in the New Covenant. Abundant grace shown to us to bring us near makes demands upon us. Who are we that we should proclaim the excellencies of the name of our God? Who are we that we get to come close to boldly approach the throne of grace? Shouldn't these privileges fire our hearts? Shouldn't it stir us up to pray and to read our Bibles and to live a life of devotion? The Lord has made Himself known to us and we should delight in our blessings and live out who we are. We don't do this as a mere matter of form. We give our Lord lip worship from a heart that delights in Him. Is that, a, is that the state of our heart? Putting off lukewarmness or negligence and saying, I will bless the Lord and all that is within me will bless His holy name. I will bless the Lord and forget not His benefits. May God help us. But then finally see, cleansing accomplished. Hezekiah roused them with a speech and then the Levites, verse 12, arose. And we get a list of 14 leaders from the three clans of the Levites and from those David appointed as singers who also taught the people. And we read verse 15, they gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Notice the Levites take action to do what the king commanded. They do it by the word of the Lord. Hezekiah is telling them what they're supposed to do, but he's only telling them what God told them to do. So the weight of God's word is pressing on their consciences. What weight leaders can give to their words when their words are biblical. In fact, God's leaders have no right to require anything of God's people that God hasn't commanded. To do so would violate our conscience. But leaders have every right to call God's people to do what God says. It is not legalism for church leaders to direct God's people to be obedient. It is accountability calling you to do what King Jesus says. And Hezekiah is holding these men accountable. Of course, the encouraging thing is they actually do something. In verses 15 to 19, three times we were told these men cleansed the house of the Lord. The priests cleansed the inward part where they could go alone. The Levites are carrying off everything unclean to the brook Kidron, verse 16. The Kidron Valley, by the way, is the place where corrupt images were burned. It took them two solid weeks from the first day to the 16th day to get rid of all the idolatrous paraphernalia in the temple. Eight days they consecrate the inner court. Eight days the courtyard. But they persisted that God's people might worship properly. And then they give the report to Hezekiah. 
Everything is cleansed. We've consecrated everything wicked Ahaz had discarded. Everything's ready to use. Yes, there was a season where God had allowed His ordinances to cease and where they were abused and cast off, but that darkness won't last forever. Why not? Because God is determined to preserve His ordinances in His people. And what an encouragement that would be to the Chronicler's original audience. They have experienced after darkness light. Because they've come back to the land. Temple worship has been restored. They're beginning to see things done in the right way. But will they persist in this? Will they recognize that God will never countenance their evil, but they must be obedient? And as they are, darkness may come upon us for a season, but the Word of God will never fail. Darkness will never last forever. Surely that should move our hearts to seek purity in the worship of God because the church shall never perish. That's a bolster to the soul. Brethren, God will never leave Himself without a witness. However, will we as God's people be concerned to cleanse? Or will we act with faithlessness? Will we engage our very beings and our labors to do what honors God's name? Or will we let our love grow cold? Let cobwebs move into the soul. Allow the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things to choke out the Word of God. What will be for us? The chronicler is appealing to his audience concerning the painful lesson of drifting into careless living. Will they learn the lesson? Well, sadly, they won't. And we therefore again are being warned. Hebrews 2.1 comes to mind. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Are we going to learn from these, people, these people's failures? And will we be stirred to have faithfulness to the Lord our God whose grace is abundant? Brother, may the Lord help us May He keep our hearts that faithlessness would not seize us, but we would cast it off and burn in zeal to the Lord. Brother, let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank You that in spite of our sin, You are pleased to use us to accept our worship as we come through the sacrificial blood of our great High Priest, the Lord Jesus. And we thank You that while we have stumbled and failed, that there's a way back to You, that there's forgiveness with You that You may be feared. Lord, we pray that we would see Your sweet, restoring grace. And we pray it would cause us to have a heart full of devotion to You. Lord, we recognize that You alone can stir this up in our souls. So we pray for the outpouring of Your Spirit upon us to rouse us to pursue faithfulness. Lord, we know we are not worthy of the least of Your blessings, and yet You have been pleased to tell us that You will bless faithfulness. So Father in Heaven, would You give us faithfulness? And may we honor Your great and glorious name in our day and among one another. For we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.